Recovery Elevator, episode 372. You know, what you were in the beginning and what you were in the middle and what you were in the end is, are, are, are nothing alike at all. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Sherry. She's 58 years old from Oregon and took her last drink on January 21st, 2019. That's what's up. Nice job, Sherry. I want to take a moment on today's episode to give a shout out to our chat hosts in Cafe RE. We've got such a great group of rock stars who lead our chats, and I want to say thank you so much for giving your time. The chats are my favorite part about Cafe RE, and you guys are a huge reason for that. Thank you very much. Now, speaking of shout outs, I also want to give a shout out to the Blue Diamonds. What's up, Gwen, Rob, Ashley, another Ashley, Amy, Justin, Sandra, Kelly, and Isabel. In our courses, listeners, we sometimes place people in smaller groups, and this is a group that continues to meet months after the Ditching the Booze course concluded. I love it, Blue Diamonds. Keep it up. Okay, before we get any further, let's hear from Soberlink. Did you know there are 15 million people in the U.S. with an alcohol use disorder? And yet, there is still stigma that surrounds addiction and recovery. We need to stop being ashamed and start sharing in our sobriety. That's why we're so excited to have a sponsor like Soberlink who shares in our beliefs. If you haven't heard of Soberlink Alcohol Monitoring System, it's the perfect accountability tool for those in recovery. It can help you rebuild trust and get back on track despite slip-ups or relapses. We've teamed up with Soberlink to provide you with Tips for Handling a Relapse, which is a guide that can be downloaded at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery elevator. On that page, you'll also find a form to sign up for a $50 off promo code for you or a loved one who is ready to take the next step in the recovery journey. That's www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. Okay, let's get started. I pulled inspiration for this episode from the book, The Energy Codes by Dr. Sue Mortar, which I absolutely love. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. In the book, she talks about the three stages of healing or three mentalities when it comes to healing. And I'm going to make this applicable to recovery or ditching the booze. Now, this may surprise you listeners, but the three stages of healing really doesn't have much to do with the amount of time away you have from alcohol. It's more about how you view your problems. And for this podcast, it's how we view the problem of an addiction or a drinking problem. Almost everyone who successfully says adios to the booze goes through these three stages. At least I know I did. Okay, let's cover the stages. Stage one, victimhood. This is, in plain terms, survival mode. Life happens to us, and there's nothing else we can do about it. Life is a struggle. Pour me, pour me, you know what's coming next. Pour me a drink. Now, victimhood creates a ripe environment for addiction. This is where a drinking problem takes hold and escalates, because after all, it's 100% justified, because everything is happening to you. Life just keeps kicking your ass. It's one goddamn thing after another, as Winston Churchill would say. And hmm, that guy also loved his booze. During the phase of victimhood, we lack coping strategies. Or a better way to say that is we only have one coping strategy, and that would be alcohol. Alcohol works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, and this seems like a cruel joke, you're no longer drinking alcohol to feel good. You're drinking alcohol to feel normal. Now, this is a major tipping point in the wrong direction, and you need to make a change fast if this is happening because the wheels will start to fall off real soon. For everyone, eventually, your coping strategy of alcohol is the reason you can't cope, and life will still be serving you up shit sandwiches without any mayo, mustard, ketchup, or fry sauce. Now, you have little to no chance of quitting drinking while in the victim stage, and here's why. You haven't identified yourself as the problem. You're blaming everything on the external world. The weather, your boss, your spouse, the perennials that don't seem to be perennials, COVID, Russia, and that list will never end. So I do have to say it, and many of you have already reached this conclusion, but you are the problem. Now that's good news because once we realize this, then we can stop playing the victim card. 
Now the fourth step in AA does a fantastic job of illuminating this. That's when I had a light bulb moment with this and I said, you don't say, I'm the problem. Perhaps the biggest roadblock to healing in this stage is you can't love yourself when playing the victim card. You haven't located yourself yet. Okay, let's move on to the next stage of healing or ditching the booze. Now this is stage two or the self-help stage. This is trying to get out of the survival mode. Life happens to us, but we know there's something we can do about it. We fix what we think is wrong. We solve problems, but really, we only get better at problem solving. We improve at the level of doing, but not being. Okay, listeners, let me try to summarize this. We recognize a problem, and then we launch a plan to fix it. This is really no different than realizing there's a leaky pipe under the kitchen sink. We find a target, we go to battle with it, and we usually end up victorious. Now, this also works with a drinking problem, but after the initial problem is solved, we are awaiting another problem to show up. Now, don't get me wrong, the self-help stage is a way better place to be than playing the victim card. You're making huge progress, but the major hiccup here is the healing is conditional. We formulate a plan, which almost always consists of an amount of time away from alcohol. For example, we declare, I'm going 30 days sober or alcohol-free. So what you've unconsciously done is attach your worth, happiness, well-being to a future date. In addition, if you've been drinking for quite some time, this is no easy feat. In fact, for some, it backfires when they realize they can't even make it past day three, four, or five, and they are left even more demoralized. Now, self-love is possible in the self-help phase, but it's only after a set criteria have been met, and then you only love yourself until a new problem to tackle shows up. Let's talk about the term dry drunk for a moment. In the 12-step world, and I like this term as well, this is someone who has quit drinking but hasn't made it to the third phase of healing. Or this person quits drinking and doesn't do any of the inner work, doesn't work a program, and uses willpower as their primary AF fuel. Side note, willpower is not a long-term strategy since it's finite, exhaustible, and Murphy's Law will eventually knock on your door and say, shit sandwich delivery for Tom. This person who is stuck in the second stage of healing, or the self-help stage, or identifying a problem and going after it, this person usually relapses when the conditions are right, and the relapse always happens before taking that first drink. Now, I do feel I'm versed in this because I was a dry drunk for 2.5 years in 2010 to 2012 when all I did was not drink. I was running on willpower, and at the end, it became painful, very painful. Now, most of the self-help healing world, I'd say about 90% of the self-help bookshelf at Barnes & Noble, lives in this second phase. One reason is because it's the most profitable. Now, think about it. You find a problem, then address it with a diet, with a sequence of steps, exercise, etc. Stage two of the healing isn't sustainable in the long run because you create separation from you and your future self. Quantum science shows there is no separation. So you placing your happy self in the future doesn't work. It's a trap. Now let's talk about the third phase of healing, which is where I feel those who do the work eventually end up. Now this is stage three, creatorship. This is seeing there was never a problem in the first place because the challenges you face in life are there to serve you. They are there to better you. From that viewpoint, you are empowered to take part in the process of co-creating new life experiences. In the quantum science world, it's explained like this. There is nothing wrong in your life. There are no problems to overcome and no obstacles to be victorious over. When we make the quantum flip, we see that there was never anything wrong because all of our life experiences are happening for our ultimate benefit. It's all in our favor and it has been all along. Let me try to summarize this one for you. As Odette has said on the podcast, everything is rigged in our favor. So when DoorDash arrives with another unrequested shit Sammy, you open the door and welcome it because the deeper you knows immediately that the challenge is there to serve you or to benefit your overall wellness. Challenges are how we grow and evolve as humans. Now some of this do this voluntarily by going to the gym. You create micro stress in the muscle fibers, the area is inflamed or sore for a few days, and then the muscle tissues grow back stronger. We emotionally grow as humans in the same way when we don't drink. I'd say yes, there are definitely some spiritual underpinnings to this, and it's a big leap of faith. And I think faith is the right word because you have to trust. 
Another way to say this third phase of healing is you take responsibility for everything in your life. When you do this, you no longer give control or power to other people, places, or things. Now, let me say the three phases again. Number one, victimhood. You're playing the victim card. Number two, self-help. We identify a problem and then go about solving it. Number three, creatorship. There was never a problem in the first place. The drinking problem was there to help or serve me. So where are you on the three stages of healing? I've been in all three of them. And if I'm honest, sometimes I still go into survival mode and play the victim card. But usually, within a couple seconds, minutes, hours, or days, depending on the thickness of the shit sandwich, I pull my energies out of the, ah, first COVID, now this, and I begin to work with the issue at hand. I try to find a way to let that energy or the problem work in my favor. Now, I usually can get to a point with patience where I recognize that whatever is happening in my life is there to ultimately help me. It's a really good place to get, but it still takes a lot of practice from me. One of the theories I've shared with you on this podcast is that an addiction does serve a purpose. And the ultimate goal of that is to connect us within. So if we are in the stage three of, uh, of creatorship here, then we can ultimately see that. We can use the energy of an addiction. We don't fight it. In fact, we can't fight an addiction, but we use the energy, those pain points to move forward in a unifying fashion with ourselves. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed this installment of the RE Podcast. I had a good time putting this one together. And again, that book is The Energy Codes. Uh, I really resonated with that book because it explains everything in terms of energy and not in terms of the story, right? And when we look at our addiction in terms of energy and not in the story, then it's almost easier to formulate a plan to get out of it. And when I say the story, I mean, that's all the life experiences, the big T's, the little T's, uh, that's trauma that have accumulated in your life. But when we look at it as energy or incoherent energy, then we can start tackling it that way, right? We can start using breath work to, to create more inner circuitry and things like that. Okay, before we hear from Odette and Sherry, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction. And Sherry, welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Adette. How are you? I'm doing great as well. Thank you so much. And let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink? It was January 21st of 2019. And how are you feeling? I've been doing really well. I've had a few things the last few months that have, that have made it a little bit more of a challenge just because, you know, drinking is an emotional thing. And when you have things that affect you emotionally, then, you know, you tend to, uh, to get those um, feelings come back somewhat. Uh, my daughter and her family moved to Texas. And so that's been a, a really big deal because um, now they're 1,500 miles away from me. So that's really hard. I know it's when the big challenges come, but look at you. I mean, you've made it through the pandemic, this big move, a lot of changes, and, and you're still in a lot of the 
process of them, but you're here today. So I hope you feel very part of yourself. It's been a long time since January 21st of 2019. Yeah. And it was quite the thing that got me here. So <laughs> it's very nice to not have those things going on in my life anymore. Oh, yeah, Sherry, I'm proud of you. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself? Can you let us know where you're calling in from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? How old you are? What do you do for a living? Just give us a little background on yourself. I live in Salem, Oregon. I am from Oregon originally, but I did not grow up here. Um, I moved back to Oregon in 1997, 58 years old. I work in IT for the state of Oregon. And um, my hobby well, at my family, I have two children. They're both grown. Um, my son is 27 and my daughter just turned 30. And I have three granddaughters from my daughter. And I have my my loving pup, um, Sassy, that I got about, um, oh gosh, it'll be two years this summer. And um, I love to hike and kayak and uh, be outside, work on my house. I've done a lot of projects on my house and I like to do the work myself as much as I can. And that keeps me pretty busy. Oh, I love it, Cherry. Thank you so much for sharing. And just give listeners some background on your history with drinking. When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And what got you to quit and to be here with us today? Well, I did want to share a story. This is a memory from when I was like super young. My pan, I, my dad worked for the government. We lived overseas. And at one point we were, we lived in Bogota, Colombia. And um, my parents had a party. They had this like bar area on this one level of the house. And I kind of remember like vaguely the laughter about, you know, my little sister who was, I don't even remember. She was what, two or three or something like going around and she was sipping out of everybody's cups. I wasn't doing that. She was doing that. So that's just a story that I remember from from my childhood. For me, because we traveled so much uh, when I was a kid, I didn't live in the States. So my my childhood was very different. Um, We came back to the States when I was in sixth grade. And I would say that I started drinking. I went to work pretty young. I started working at 16. And so I worked with older people and back then they didn't card you if you were with older people, especially. So drank a lot, started, started drinking. It was always social. Like that was the thing everyone did together was you drank. I had a incident with my first fiance where we'd gone to a party and we uh, came out. I could, I wasn't, I didn't want to drive. So he went to drive and he was driving my car and he accidentally nicked another car and they're like, Oh, nothing's wrong. And we like took off and the police showed up at my door, you know, I don't know how long later, uh, it was probably a couple months saying, so, um, your car was, uh, in, uh, involved in a hit and run. And so, um, that was not good when my dad found out, found that out. So that's the whole story in and of itself. But um but drinking was very prevalent in my my youth. Um it was just the things you did. And then I got married pretty young. I was 21 when I got married. And then after I got married, um I didn't drink a lot and I didn't have kids for a while, but still drinking wasn't like a huge thing in my life. Um I could take it or leave it. Had kids finally and while I was raising the kids, it wasn't as big a deal. I did have a situation with my ex. Uh, I did get divorced eventually, but after my son was born, um, I had taken a transfer to um, Washington State from California, and like he was so on, he was on board with it, and everything was fine. And then we get there, we get all moved there, and then he's like, "We're there a week," and he goes, "Well, I can't find a job here, so I'm going to go back down to California with our daughter," and you can, you need to figure out how to get back to California. And I was just like, really? Are are you kidding? Um, And so that was, that was, I think, one of the big turning points for me. It kind of threw me. I was only like two months out from having my son. So he was only two months old. And um, it hit me really hard. And it kind of threw me into postpartum depression. And 
I was, it was really, really hard for me. Um, I luckily ended up, my company was downsizing and they were going to let someone else go. And I said, well, you know, I'll take the severance package if you're willing to do that because I need to get back to California anyway. And my boss just looked at me like, really? Because uh, I think they really wanted to get rid of the other guy. But, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. But I just couldn't. I mean, I was dragging my son on calls with me to go work on equipment in the middle of the night. And so that just wasn't, wasn't uh, something I could sustain per- at all, period. Plus the separation and everything. So um, that really affected our marriage considerably. And over the next, oh gosh, 15 years, it was just kind of up and down. Um, it didn't really start getting bad for me until my kids started uh, getting closer to graduating from high school and that whole emptiness, especially if you're in a sorority or fraternity. I don't think people, parents understand what it is until their child is in that environment and some embrace it um, and some don't even realize, I guess. But it was kind of, it kind of threw me into this like higher level because here I was going to events with my daughter and there was like all this drinking and and in the middle of some of that I had gastric bypass in 2009. So something that most people aren't aware of uh, is that when you have gastric bypass the anatomy of the body is changed and the way that you consume or your body uh, metabolizes alcohol is drastically different than before that. And so I could drink, it would hit me really fast, but then I could drink again. And I could, it was crazy how much I could drink. But I mean, I would also like do the blackout stuff. I mean, I never had blackouts before bypass. So that was definitely something that, but then maybe I probably didn't drink as much before that either. So my daughter's 25th birthday, I, we went to a brunch thing and I ended up um, driving home, which I I didn't I shouldn't have driven home, but I w- I did, and I got my first DUI. That was really it was hard, but it was also one of those things that I it still wasn't enough to make me think I had a problem, even though during the time that I couldn't drive and I was taking the bus for the short time. I still would do stupid, crazy things because I wasn't driving, even though part of my probation is you're not supposed to drink, right? So after that, my son joined the Air Force and I had two, two dogs that um, passed away within four months of each other. They were not expected to, like they had no health issues or anything. And the, the last one passed away the day my son left so to, to drive himself to Anchorage for his first um, duty station um, in Alaska. And so that was, that was uh, one of the hardest days for me and definitely set the tone for me in my marriage and, and things. I was at the point where I was done, but I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. And the only way to be around my husband was to drink. And so I just drank all the time. And I finally was able to get on an antidepressant and ask for the divorce and finally got through all of that. And then that last whammy hit me where I had, I had some issues at work. They were probably affected by alcohol. Not that I am willing necessarily to admit it, but um, I had a, a relationship with a manager that was just very difficult. And I saw her at an event And I had actually been sober for two weeks. And it was an event that I only went to because my daughter was helping coordinate it. And so I had an interaction with her. And then I had this this message from my ex and my my niece was living with me. And it was just super difficult. And I just kind of went on a bender and ended up with my second DUI. And that was the one that did it. When you can't drive for over a year and then you have a blow device in your car for over a year then and then the pandemic hits and I got the device in a few months after um like like the pandemic yeah like we when when they made us start working from home and stuff like that and so I didn't have to drive and so it's like okay well now that I don't have to drive (laughs) 
I, I can drive and you know that that whole that whole thing. So I have a I have a quick question regarding the first DUI. Like, did you perceive it as, you know, I just went to this event and I had too much to drink and it was kind of bad luck that I got caught? Or were you already wondering, like, oh, am I just starting to drink more than before? Because I just feel like you were such a quote unquote normal drinker, if I'm hearing this right, for so many years of your life. And then it was like a switch went off. Like, were you able to detect that internally that, oh my God, I'm holding on to alcohol way more than I ever was? Well, there are a couple of things um, that I've, that I've gone through in my trying to figure out my, my past in this whole thing. And there are a couple of things that stand out before bypass food was one of my ways of dealing with emotional things. And at one point, I feel that um, maybe some of my weight issues and the reason why I, I gained, I, 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 it was almost like I willingly gained weight because I was hoping my husband would leave me because here's the thing I struggle with is that in our marriage, I did everything. And the one thing I didn't want to do is have to flip that switch and say, and, and make him go away. Right. And then also my dad died when I was there, when he was young, he was 54. And so as I started approaching 54, it was almost like I was on this self-destruct path because why should I live longer than my dad? did? Oh, wow. Those are like huge realizations, you know, and I, I very respectful of people with food issues. As you know, I, I had my fair share of struggles with that too. And I just didn't know if you know, you had some sort of correlation between, you know, your drinking and food and how you're basically managing hard emotions through that. Because I also know if I'm if I'm not mistaken, you know, once you have the surgery, the bypass, it's really hard to binge like your body just also cannot take the same amount of food as you were taking before. So I don't know if in your brain was thinking, you know, I got to use something else to numb out. Well, you definitely do find the alternative. And they warn you, though. They warn you ahead of time and they say, you know, you really can't drink. But I don't, it's not something that people really understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in um, a Facebook, basically a transfer addiction group because people with bypass, you know, they have had, they had, other addictions prior to getting bypassed. And then once they get bypassed, then they do, or they develop other addictions after because food is no longer able to be used in the same way. So yes, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to, when you have all of the things that go on in your life, you know, we don't want to deal with our emotions. And I think for me, it's just, it was just so overwhelming you know, when my, my dad died so suddenly it, that he was, he, he just was my world. And I had been, I'd had a long period of time because right after I got married, my parents moved from uh, Virginia where we were living to Oregon, like six months after I got married. And so I had this very long period of time where I wasn't able to be close in proximity, like physically to my my parents and you know I love my mom to death but you know my relationship with my dad was just very very strong and so I would just like drive up to Oregon every chance I got you know and all that kind of stuff and then I moved back to Oregon in August of 97 and he died November of 98 so I was only back close enough to be able to spend quality time with him for a year before he died. And so that was really hard. But yeah, I think I might have gotten off track there. But No, no, I appreciate you sharing that, Sherry, because I mean, you know, part of that grieving process and, and getting through something so shocking and sudden and so devastating, which I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm really close to my dad. And I can only imagine, um, you know, there has to be a way to process it, even if that means using unhealthy coping mechanisms. So do you think now you've been able to process? I mean, where did you even find the awareness to 
kind of realize that perhaps you went into this sabotaging mode after that age that he hit? Like, how did even that aha moment come to you? And have you been able to process his death? Well, so I've been in therapy for a long time. Um, I've been seeing a therapist for many years. And just a lot of it has been just like she's been through through like all of this stuff with me. And, you know, it's not like she like sits there and says, well, do you think it's this? You know, it's one of those things where she allows me to be doing the analyzing and I'll say, so what do you think? This is what I'm thinking. And she's like, oh, wow, that's a pretty good um, observation. You know, so it's been through that kind of work with her. That's been helpful. I, as far as processing, it's, I still don't feel like I've, I've processed it completely. I don't think you ever do. It's just, I, I don't know if maybe my thinking that that could have been the reason why it's just, you know, fluff, you know, I mean, it, it, that's a potential, but I just thought, looked at the behaviors that I was exhibiting and it just seemed like the closer I got to that age, the worse that I was, I was acting out. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's been a lot of things throughout my life that I'm definitely not proud of that, you know, I stayed married for my kids and my kids said, why? <laughs> no, I hear that. I hear you. Know? you. Yeah, there's, it's, it's a messy path and we, we never really know the actual answers you know sometimes we just are trying to make sense of it ourselves so i i just appreciate you sharing and just i can hear your your awareness you know and and it's great that you've been able to work with a therapist through through all of it i think that's key finding someone that's been there with us and knows the history knows the data that i think that's the hardest part of finding a new therapist that you kind of have to start from scratch and give them the whole background. So, you know, I'm just really glad that you've had someone to talk to this whole time. And I'm the one that got a little bit off track. So let me reroute us back, Sherry. What happened after that second DUI? You said it was definitely more of an aha moment and the pandemic hit. And like, how did you maintain this streak? I mean, it's been a long time. Did you have any trouble stringing days was it an immediate resolution and you just haven't had a drink since or like walk me through these this beginning chapter of recovery for you well it definitely was an immediate thing but i it was it was hard you know i was i was living by myself i had moved out of the home we had sold the home gotten divorced so my daughter had to come pick me up uh, from jail, which I swore I would never have to make her do that again. And I had a really good friend that she reached out to, which I'm very thankful that she did because she needed support also in dealing with that situation. And that friend also um, got me in touch with a Christian counselor. So I started seeing um, this wonderful man that is just, you know, phenomenal and so for me, it was, I would not go to the grocery store. I would order my groceries. Or if I went, I would go with friends because I couldn't drive anyway, or my mom would take me. And so I also was like Googling how, like, what are like programs that I could do, you know? And I came across the Craig Beck one that's like $700 or something. And I actually signed up for that one. And then I found Recovery Elevator. So I canceled that one really fast because I didn't want to spend $700. (laughs) And it didn't feel like it really was going to fit my my style anyway. And I found Recovery Elevator and and started, um, you know, uh, checking out the Facebook group. And um, I I haven't done as many webinars as a lot of people, but I did sign up as soon as it came available for the Bozeman retreat in, um, in 2019. And um, I got to go to that. And that's where I met you for the first time. And I also ended up through the court, I had to participate in a um, intensive outpatient program. And that was three nights a week for three hours a day. 
Um, I had to, I couldn't drive, so I was busing it everywhere or getting rides, which is really hard to do. So there's a lot of shame involved in that. And so, but my life actually just revolved around recovery. I mean, everything I did was recovery oriented. I had to go to AA on top of my inpatient or my outpatient program. So I was going for my regular counseling. I was seeing that Christian counselor. I was doing three nights a week of intensive outpatient and I was doing an AA meeting on top of that. So, so every hour I wasn't working, um, I was doing recovery. And I think that that's important, especially in the beginning, because, you know, um, that's when you need that intensive stuff the most. I will not say that I was very thrilled with my counselor in my outpatient program, but in the end, I'm very thankful to her and I ended up developing a much deeper respect for her than I started off with, that's for sure, but... But that was the beginning. Yeah. And did you notice that because you did have to put so much time into recovery at the beginning, like you said, it felt almost all consuming. What was your headspace? Were you excited, motivated because maybe you were feeling a little bit better? Or were you mad? Like what was your I can I can hear your actions and what steps you were taking. But what were your feelings at that time? Well, I would definitely say that there was a lot of anger. You know, especially because when I first went in for my evaluation, because the way Oregon works it for a DUI, you have to go get an evaluation. And initially, they were going to just have me do this class program thing, which, and then it turned out they changed it to the intensive outpatient, and which in the long run was for the best, but that just did fuel some of the anger that I had. And then the way that that counselor would approach things at times, I would, I would have to say the serenity prayer. Like I, I would almost say the serenity prayer, like a, before I walked in that, that class every day, because, you know, if I didn't, I would feel like I was just going to explode. And I wasn't a big talker at first, but then eventually I, I became better at sharing my, my, where I was and my, place in my recovery and and all that the one thing I will say though was I was so excited about Bozeman and when I got back from Bozeman I was like at this different level in my recovery and I go into my IOP class when I got back and I was like oh my gosh you guys wouldn't believe all this stuff we did we did like you know breath work and all this bunch of stuff we had these amazing meditation and yoga and they just didn't care like it, it was nothing to them. And that just kind of like popped my balloon and, you know, let up, like kind of just totally deflated me a little bit. But yeah. it was like, okay, it's not for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like you realize through this journey too that, I don't know, that sometimes the resentments that we build towards other people are these just unmet expectations. I mean, I remember the first time I went to Bozeman when I came back, I was also super pumped and I feel like it's such a hard thing when people don't match our level of excitement on maybe just not even recovery, but on anything. But it's, it's so interesting to see, you know, oh, wow. Well, like that's why it's important to have friends in recovery because then I will feel that connection on that level. And maybe someone else will, I'll connect with them and get excited about something else. I don't know. For me, recovery has really taught me that not everyone is going to fulfill all of my needs. I'm like a very complex person and I know who I need to talk to about my depression and who I can talk to about, I don't know, marital problems or parenting venting out, you know, it's just, you just have to find the people for it. So did you find that in going to Bozeman, you did find, you know, that community component or that connection? Did you, did that click for you at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I left there with friends that I will have probably for the rest of my life. Um, I still interact with a lot of people. It was so good because I went to Bozeman this past summer also. It was so nice to be able to go back and, you know, 
I arrived and I see Lauren and she comes running over to give me a hug. And it's just like, I haven't seen her for two years. And, you know, it's, it's just, I guess my expectation when I talked about it in IOP is here are other people that are in the same place I am yet. They're not, they're not seeing or hearing how much this helped and benefited me. So that I think was a real take back for me. Like I got more out of my daughter and my therapist than I got out of the people in this room that also have the same problem I have. But again, we're all in different places and not everybody is, you know, has made peace with where they are in the process. And I think, I think a big being someone who was at treatment myself too, I think like seeing it as something fun and as an opportunity and as a kind of a new way of living for me didn't come when I was at treatment. Cause like you said, maybe those people weren't there yet. I, I feel like I was definitely more on the, oh man, like I'm at this center and I have to be here and I'm having to not be in normal life. I don't know. It felt so different when I went on my first sober trip. Like it felt like this is life versus, oh, I'm secluded over here because there's something wrong with me. I don't know. It's a different environment, but I could see how taken aback you must have been, you know, coming to a place where you share the same struggle, but maybe they just weren't seeing it as what life could be like yet. Well, and I tend to feel like I'm more like, I look for alternatives. I don't look for mainstream stuff, right? So I'm not the I mean, I do go to AA and I love my AA home group and I'm very, very happy to have that as a part of my life. Um, but I, for me, and my, some of my AA peeps might not you know, like that I say this, I feel there are other things that I need in my life that, that, that help me with my sobriety in a way that AA doesn't. So I look for those kinds of things. I go out of my way to find those kinds of things because that's what helps me. Of course. I mean, and that takes a level of, you know, knowing yourself and experimenting and trying different things. And and that's very personal and different for everyone. You know, the thing that I've been talking about in and outside of the show with the people in my life is like, you need to define your own recovery and you need to really kind of take some time to go through that exercise and really, you know, make a list of your person, like the personality things that are important for you, the skills, the things that you want to intertwine with your recovery. Because if you're here for the long haul, it needs to work with who you are. And there's only one Sherry. So you, you really have to make it your own and for yourself. So I'm just really happy that, I don't know, I feel like you are on the path of just always finding what works for you. So Sherry, tell me what started getting better. Like I know you said earlier that you used to take uh, medication for your depression? Like what, what got better once you started to stack days and weeks and months? Well, I still take an antidepressant. I think it's uh, something that just is, it, it helps me stay even keel. Um, I have a good relationship with my PCP. It's so nice to be able to answer those questions uh, truthfully um, about how much I drink, which is zero. I had to actually increase my antidepressant. I was working on a pretty intense project at work and I approached her about increasing my dose a little bit while I was on that. And it was a project that lasted um, over a year. And I just recently was able to to talk to her about dropping that dose back down because I feel like I'm in a better place. Even though with my daughter gone, it's a, it's a little harder. Like there's just the, the emotional component that um, it's a little harder, but as far as where I am in my recovery, I think that that um, that's good. It's, I'm in a good place. Um, I have been working with a sponsor for, oh my gosh, I started with her right about the time the pandemic hit. And I, I think I'm probably one of the longest four step people she's had uh, maybe, but um, I'm just finishing up my four steps and so getting ready to do fifth. And I work hard. I'm, I've always been very a very hard worker and I think it's for me what's been good is is finding things that take my focus off of that want even wanting to drink. So the projects on my house has been something that have really helped with that. I since I like to do the work I, myself, it's it's kind of funny because my mom was living with me for a while and that was kind of hard for me because you know when I'm working on something in my house, I don't like to have somebody watch me and she likes 
if someone should like to come and watch and see what I was doing. And I just feel like, go away, you know? <laughs> um, I'm one of those where I want to do it and I'll show you the thing at the end and you can do the, all the ooing and eyeing that you want, you know? So that's for me been, been the thing where when I, when I made the decision that I thought I was in a good place to buy a house after the divorce, um, it worked out well. And I, I found a house and ironically, it's almost the exact same house that I had when I was married. But I really liked that house. And so, you know, this is, that's what I ended up with. But um, I will say that my son struggled um, with issues. And um, that's been really hard for me because I feel like, I feel like I have some responsibility in that, even though it's his choice and he's the one who made the decision. But, you know, you still feel like through this role model and you know, but I've tried to be very honest with him. Um, he's back living with me. He's out of the Air Force. And so that has been a little bit of a, of a challenge where, you know, my rules are no, no drugs or alcohol in my house. If you're going to do it, you make sure you're, you're sober when you come home. We've had a few instances where that hasn't quite worked out and we've had to deal with it. But I'm hoping that in the end, maybe now I'm being a better role model for you. A hundred percent, you know, just by enforcing your boundaries of your house while he's living there. And also I understand when you say that you feel some guilt. I mean, motherhood is a total trip, but you are living in the solution, right? And you're living in the answer and, and that's what he's looking at right now. So I think you are exactly where you need to be with that, Sherry. And I, I really hope that you're not giving yourself a hard time, but I, but I hear I hear that and, and it's really hard to separate outcomes of our kids with like what factors were at play for this to happen. And and I, I know you know I'm a mom too. So it's just it's just hard. But you're you're doing all the right things. And and Sherry, what about, you know, you just had a big life change with your daughter moving and your grandma and family is important to you. What about when things get really hard? You know, other than the support from your antidepressant and, you know, community. What do you do now when things get hard? Like, how do you stay in the present moment? Well, I guess I'm one of those where I try to take my mind off of whatever, whatever it is. I mean, I do try to deal with the feelings, but, you know, I, I am still that and probably always will deep down be one of those avoiding, avoiding type people. But I acknowledge that. And, you know, I, I sit in the feelings for as long as I'm comfortable and then I will go and throw myself into something. And if I need to, I, I'll, I'll call my daughter, you know, I mean, it was nice because I, I didn't have as much time when they lived here because she worked out of my house. And so she was here with, with two of the three girls every weekday because we worked together. And so I, I had a lot of, a lot of time as a, as a Nana to, you know, help out and, and, um, you know, spend time with the girls and just get that, that charge, you know, of that, that heart fill, you know, I mean, I'd get that and at the end of the day, I'd be exhausted because, you know, yes, running around after, after two-year-olds and, uh, you know, helping with a baby is, it could be exhausting. I don't know how she does sleep, you know, but, you know, I, again, like I said, I think I deal with it as much as I can. And then, then I find someone else, something else to fill my time. And that might be watching a show and knitting a blanket, you know, while I'm doing it, because I feel like I need to, can't just be watching a show. <laughs> you know, distraction has always been one of my favorite tools and it, I've really leaned on it lately. And I, I, I say it with no shame. I think I was sharing at an RE meeting couple of days ago who I'm on on how I am on level like 150 something of Candy Crush right now and I could either sit there and give myself a hard time or I could just give myself a pat on the back for just doing what I needed to do to get through the moment you know things have been hard for many of us and I don't know I feel like there's this narrative that I'm trying to break out of of like having to do this really well and, and whatever that means. Right. But it's basically just having to do this period, having to get through today. And my best won't always look the same, but I do think that distraction, 
like I just want to give everyone a permission slip of you can use distraction as a tool as much as you need to use it, to be honest. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm one of those where since the pandemic, I've been working from home and they are talking about having us have to go back in on a rotation basis, um, like once every, I don't know how many weeks. And when I first started working from home, it was, I was not happy doing it because my mom was here and one of my, you know, I love my mom, like they said, but, you know, um, being here with her all day long and trying to work and all that kind of stuff was challenging for me. And my, my desk was in my bedroom. And so then she made the decision to move into independent care, which was so nice for me. And so now I have an office. Um, and then that office was a office and a playroom. But the one thing for me, though, um, I guess is where I started to go with it is that I work a lot. I'm just one of those that I always have. Even before, I would just stay at the office. <laughs> It was my way of avoiding going home. And uh, now I just do it, I think, because sometimes I'm bored. So I think that that is one thing that I spend too much time doing is working. But. Well, and I think also, too, is what happens when we stop drinking is we start really recognizing and getting to know ourselves and, and acknowledging our, our blueprint and kind of how we're wired. And I mean, right now you sharing that um, you had always worked a lot, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like our journeys are so unique and they're so linked to who we are. I remember one of my therapists told me once, you know, like there's no perfect way of doing this, but any new behaviors that pop up, be mindful of them. But any old behavior that's kind of like kind of how you've always been, those are higher, those are harder to to change. And if if it's not like you all of a sudden developed workaholic tendencies, you, you just mentioned, you know, I had to recognize that it's what I did before. So it's also kind of what I'm going to do after. And, and I just think there is no perfect way. And, and it's important to also realize and recognize who we are and, and what our behaviors are outside of the drinking too. Yeah. I am. Um, I've always worked in uh, you know, a male dominated field. So for me, I always had the pressure of, of feeling like I needed to work harder and more than anyone else, just to prove that I was as good as they were. And so that just carried on throughout my life and my jobs. And, you know, now I'm 20, I just celebrated 24 years with the state. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at maybe in seven years, when I hit my 30 years that, you know, I want to figure out what I want to, I want to start now figuring out what I want to do then, because, you know, I'm always going to be a worker. I'm not Mm -hmm. one of those that's going to be able to you know, just kick my feet up on my back deck seven days a week. And, you know, totally. so what do I want to do? You know, and I guess the thing for me that's exciting is that it can be anything I want to be. I, I can do anything I want to do because there are no limits at that point because it's my second job. It's my, like, it'll just be an addition to my retirement. So it's not like it has to be anything perfect. It can be fun and exciting and hopefully I can find something that'll check on my boxes. That is really, you know, an amazing place to be and the fact that you are able to be there and you can choose whatever you want. Like do you attribute any of that possibility to you being sober? I I feel like my I'm just in a totally different place today. You know, I got I got divorced will be four years coming up here. It's one of those things where everything I do now is I'm doing for me. Whereas before it was like, there was just always a, this expectation and all this frustration and everything. And now it's like, you know, and there's nothing to say that I won't end up maybe eventually meeting somebody and, you know, going into a new relationship. But I feel like I've, I have different, I, I know what I want now in a relationship whereas when you get married at 21 and you're married for 34 years that that 34 year span of your life changes so much and you know what you were in the beginning and what you were in the middle and what you were in the end is are 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 nothing alike at all and now it's like I have I feel like I just have that freedom 
And yeah, you're right. I think it, it it's attributed to the fact that I am sober and that I can clearly think about what I want my life to be. I love that. Yeah. Um, I hope my kids get married a little bit older if they do get married. <laughs> I'm already <laughs> like, I also got married fairly young and I'm like, I didn't ask so many questions. I didn't, you know, it's just crazy. It's just hindsight. But uh, I'm just really happy to just hear that you're whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it for yourself. And that has to feel really good. I'm happy to hear kind of the excitement of the possibilities of of what your life in the next, you know, five, seven to 10 years can look like. So I'm happy that I know you so that I can so that I can witness it too. And Sherry, we've reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Sure am. All right. What would you say to your younger self? Take care of yourself. Nobody else can. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Hmm. Anything chocolate. What is your answer when somebody offers you a drink? No, thank you. I don't drink. Hmm. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Uh, Cafe RE, of course, uh, my sponsor and my AA group. My ladies are amazing. And my, my counselors, they're, they're, my, they're all my lifelines. I love that. All right. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Do it as soon as you can and just get the, get the help you need. We all need it. And before we depart, Cherry, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if line. You might have a drinking problem if the tow truck driver's assistant says there aren't any deer in this area to avoid while they're pulling your car out of the ditch. Oh, Sherry, thank you so much for doing this and for just sharing your journey with us. I really appreciate you and just take care. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Talk soon. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you that you are doing a great job. I really don't think that we're told that enough, or maybe it's just me. I find myself still consistently looking for that validation to see if people out there can see everything that's going on in here and to acknowledge all of the work and all of the effort and all of the attempts that I go through every single day. It's good to remember that as much as we do need that validation, we can always start by giving it to ourselves and by acknowledging that we are doing a lot, even when we don't feel like we are, and that we are doing the best that we can, and that our best may be different from day to day, and that we have to continue to be an advocate for ourselves and our own cheerleader and that it is up to us to remind ourselves that we're doing a great job. And if you tend to forget that you're doing a great job, like I sometimes do, I'm happy to remind you today. We're doing a great job, Team Ari. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down, you got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are, is by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken. Well,
normal everyday usage, I embodies the primordial error, a misperception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity. This is the ego.